Have you ever played the game Balderdash? It's sort of a fun uh, game for families to get, get around and play, maybe at Christmas time. In this family-style game, uh, someone reads a card with a strange word on it, and everyone writes down uh, their definition of the word, what they think it might mean. Or if you have no idea of what this strange word means, you write down something that you might be able to bluff other people into guessing that it's uh, the right definition. And that's how you gain points. One of the ways you gain points is by getting other people to guess what your word, uh, what your definition for the word really is. Later, uh, after they came out with the game Balderdash, they came out with another one called Beyond Balderdash. And it has a lot of different categories. And it has movies, strange movies you've never heard of. It has uh, different kinds of people that uh, really haven't made that deep of an impact into history, but maybe they invented the paperclip or something strange like that. Uh, they, they have dates as well, some date in history. And uh, some, so someone might read off the date July 20th, 1969. And if you're a history buff, you know, well, that's the day that we landed on the moon and Neil Armstrong walked on the moon for, uh, for the very first time. And so um, I want to give you a couple of different dates today. And I want you to see if you can guess them. The first one ought to be pretty easy for you. It's December 7th, 1941. Now, you know this one, and I know Carolyn and Don know this one, uh, one of their uh, favorite dates. They went to Pearl Harbor not too long ago and uh, was able to visit. Uh, well, that's the day, of course, that Japan had sent their aircraft carriers halfway across the Pacific Ocean, and they uh, led an aerial attack on the United States at Pearl Harbor. And it was an obvious declaration of war against the United States. It was a sneak attack. But it was obvious to everyone that we're at war. It didn't take very long for President Roosevelt to get before Congress and to ask Congress to declare war, which Congress, of course, did. And so that's a date that was so impactful that he called it, President Roosevelt called it, a date that will live in infamy. There's another date I want to give you. August 23rd, 1996. I doubt anyone here knows what that date signified. It's not a famous date. It was never called a date that will live in infamy, although maybe it should have been. But that was the date that a man by the name of Osama bin Laden issued a fatwa declaring war on the United States. I mean, did anyone at the time notice, except for obviously some CIA personnel, maybe a news outlet or two, but if anyone really noticed, did anyone take it seriously? Both of those dates, December 7th, 1941, August 23rd, 1996, there was a state of war essentially declared. And we were in a state of war on those dates. One of them we knew. It was very obvious. Another one we didn't really know, know that we were in a state of war. And so uh, at least not to the point that we did anything about it. But if I were to tell you today that we are currently in a state of spiritual war. What effect would that have on you? You know, the war that we're in is not a war that you can see with your own eyes. It's not a war that newscasters mention. It's not a war that presidents get before Congress and ask for a declaration against the enemy. It's not a physical war for the sake of our nation, but it's a spiritual war for the sake of souls our own soul and the soul of others that uh, have an eternity at stake. 
And so we're in a spiritual war. Our enemy is not some other nation, it's not some madman, but it's our enemy is Satan himself. And Satan has a horde of demonic followers that uh, have declared war against us. The question really becomes is how are we going to win this war? How are we going to win it? It took us a few years to figure out how to win World War II. And it has yet to really capture the heart of the soul of our nation to figure out how we're going to win this war against Islamic uh, terrorism. Uh, but we will, I believe, hopefully win that war. How do we win a spiritual war against an unseen enemy? Well, the only way to do it is through by using spiritual weapons. The good news is that God has given us what we need to win the daily battles in this spiritual war. And today I want to give you five simple keys to victory. They're found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We're going to read this, and then we'll go back and look at it more carefully. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, if you'll turn in your Bible there, Scripture reads this way. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. In these five brief verses, uh, I think there are five keys to victory in this spiritual war that we face. Key to victory number one is this, to pray for God's word to spread. Pray for God's word to spread. Verse one again says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. In your life every day, you can pray that the gospel, the word of the Lord, will reach people quickly, that it will spread out quickly into people's lives. What's the gospel? Well, you and I know what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the news that God has broken through into this world through the person of Jesus Christ. And he is the eternal son of God. He, be, he became a human just like you and me, yet without sin. And he faced all of the temptations and all the frailties that you and I face. He became hungry. He was thirsty. Um, you and I faced some of these same issues. He was tempted. And yet he was faithful where you and I sometimes we fail the test. And Jesus lived a faithful life so faithful that he eventually died on a cross for our sins as a perfect sacrifice. And the sacrifice that he paid, paid for the sins of the whole world. And Jesus, the good news of Jesus is that he didn't stay dead, but he rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven and he is the Lord. He's coming back someday. And so that's the good news of the Lord. And that is the message that needs to spread rapidly throughout the land. You know, many of us heard the good news many decades ago. Someone, a Sunday school teacher, maybe a preacher at an evangelistic uh, crusade, maybe on Sunday morning, maybe it was a godly grandmother, maybe it was a godly father. Somebody told us the good news of Jesus Christ, and we listened, and we absorbed that message, and we thought about it, even if we were just children. 
we could understand the message and we could respond in faith. Many of us heard that many decades ago, uh, many decades ago. And if we're not careful, we'll come to a false sense of security that, oh, well, everyone knows the gospel. Everyone's heard the gospel. But increasingly, that's not true. More and more people, more and more children, for example, are growing up with zero witness as to who the Lord Jesus Christ is. You know, there are over 2 billion children in the world today. Over 2 billion children. Some of those children will never live to adulthood. Many of them. Because of famine, because of wars, because of sickness, all kinds of things. Many of them will, are not as privileged as the children that are raised in our own country. We have so many advantages. Uh, but many of those children all around the world never make it to adulthood. There are two billion children. There are also billions of people who have never heard the good news of Jesus in a manner in which they could understand and respond. The only time they've heard Jesus is if Jesus' name is mentioned as a cuss word or perhaps if Jesus' name and, and who Jesus is was mentioned by some uh, false teaching and the actual teachings and the good news of Jesus has perverted in their own mind. Many people in the world today, billions of people in the world today, never even have the chance to receive the Lord Jesus Christ into their lives. You know, the issue is not that God's word is slow. The issue is that we're slow. We need to be quick in spreading the gospel. In fact, the, did you know the Bible talks about how fast the word of God is? In Psalm 147, verse 15, it says, He sends forth his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. I love that. The word of God runs swiftly. When God speaks, it doesn't take a long time for his word to get to the recipient. God's word runs very swiftly. We need to pray that the good news of Jesus Christ spreads swiftly and that that word is glorified, that word is honored. Verse 1 again uh, tells us that, that the word of God be spread rapidly and be glorified. This means to, to pray that people everywhere will receive the, God's word and honor it as God's word. It's like running a race at the Olympics. Which of the runners is glorified at the end? It's the one that's the fastest. It's the one that's, that moves the fastest, that crosses the finish line first. That's how we should think of the Word of God, that it would move quickly to people's hearts who need to hear it, and that they receive it and they understand it and they honor it as God's Word and they uh, glorify God because they've heard the message of the good news. The reason that we need to pray for the gospel to spread and to spread rapidly and to spread in a way that people receive it and honor it is because we are in this spiritual state of war. Satan has a host of supernatural beings that work constantly to stop the spread of the good news. But when we share Jesus with others, we are obedient to God and they have an opportunity to be saved. But when we don't share Jesus with others, regardless of the reason. Sometimes we don't share Jesus with others because we're scared. Sometimes we're just not feeling up to it. We're not feeling good. Something's wrong physically with us. Sometimes we don't share Jesus with others because we're not close to God. We don't feel like we can really have a strong witness to anyone because we know we're not, we're not right with God. Uh, but whatever reason, we don't share the word of God with other people. We don't share the gospel with other people. People can't be saved. 
People cannot be saved if we remain silent. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How are they going to have faith? How are they going to believe? If, only if they hear. How are they going to hear? Well, they're certainly not going to hear if we keep our mouth shut, if we do nothing. And so we must pray for God's word to be spread. We must be the voice that spreads the word of God and that it spreads rapidly so people can receive it and glorify God. The second key to spiritual victory in this state of war that we're in is to pray for deliverance from evil people. Pray for deliverance from evil people. Verse 2, Paul asks for this. He says, pray that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. You know, the Apostle Paul experienced a lot of opposition in his gospel ministry. You know that after Paul started the church there in Thessalonica, he was run out of town by some religious leaders and by some city leaders. They believed his message put the city's good standing with the emperor in danger. And so Paul was run out of town. He made his way to a, another town, a significant town called Corinth. And there in Corinth, he stayed for a year and a half. And then some of, the, some of his Jewish opponents there in Corinth, they hatched a conspiracy against him. They lied against him. And they brought Paul there in Corinth before the Roman proconsul, a man by the name of Galileo, or Gallio, I should say. And during Paul's stay in Corinth, Paul wrote these letters that we call 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and he sent them back to this city, back to these Christians where the, he founded this church. He brought the gospel to this city. And it's very likely that Paul wrote the letter of 2 Thessalonians just before his trial was to begin before the Roman proconsul Gallio. Paul's opponents in that trial were trying to stop him from telling people about Jesus. And so Paul, what did he ask the Thessalonian church for? He said, pray for us, pray for me, that we will be rescued from these perverse and evil men. For not all have faith. What was the result of their prayer? We don't read about this in 2 Thessalonians, but we know from elsewhere that Paul uh, won that legal battle. He was delivered from his adversaries. Prayer won the spiritual battle. It was because of the Thessalonians' prayers, because of the prayers of other Christians, that Paul was delivered, and he could continue to preach the gospel clearly. You know, there's going to be people in your life who oppose you, and they oppose your faith. And a general principle is this, that the more faithful you are in sharing Christ, the more likely someone won't like it. Because they're being led by not the Holy Spirit, but by a different kind of spirit. And notice that Paul doesn't say that these opponents of his, these ones that dragged him before the proconsul, notice he doesn't say, well, these men are just misled. He doesn't say, all oh, these men, they're just ignorant. Ah, they don't know what they're doing. He doesn't say that at all. He says that these men are perverse, these men are evil. You see, they knew that God sent his son to die for them, and they still opposed the good news. Many of the people that are most opposed to the Christian faith are very well aware of it. They understand the gospel message. They understand what Christians say. They understand that Christians believe that God sent his son into this world. And they take that message. And where you and I would look at that, 
that message, the good news of Christ, and we would say, thank you, God, and we would receive it, they look at God and they curse God and they mock Jesus and they mock us and they want to shut us up and they want to push us out of the public square. They want us to never speak of Christ except when we gather within the four walls of the church. Maybe, maybe they would allow us to preach Christ there, but nowhere else because their message, quote-unquote, offends them. These people are perverse and evil. They're not just ignorant. They're not just, not just misguided. Paul had it right. These people have have understood the gospel message, and they have set their heart against God. And not only do they claim to not believe God, but the reality is they hate God. They hate everything that God stands for. They look at the history of the church, and all they can point to are the mistakes that our forefathers made from time to time. They don't look at all the orphanages that were started, all the hospitals that have been started, all the good that's been done in Jesus' name. They forget all about that, and they simply want to oppose everything that God has done through his church. They're not just ignorant, they're perverse, they're evil. Pray for deliverance from these perverse and evil men. Third key to victory is to trust in God's faithfulness. Trust in God's faithfulness. Verse 3 says, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. You know, God is faithful all the time. It's become sort of a saying in many churches where the preacher will say, God is good, and the church will respond all the time. God is faithful all the time too. God is faithful all the time. When you and I, when we suffer for the Lord's sake, when we face these perverse and evil men who oppose the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and they cause us to suffer, maybe they, at this point they just shun us, but later soon they may put us in jail, maybe they'll kill us, who knows what they'll do. Take our property from us, try to split up our families, take the word of God, burn the word of God, do whatever they can do to shut us up. When we suffer for the Lord's sake, it is not for nothing that we suffer. Our suffering counts for something. And God is faithful and he is with us through our suffering. The people who persecute us for our faith, when we talk about God being faithful, it also means that those people will reap justice one day. God is faithful and he will make them give an account. He will hold their feet to the fire. When we talk about God being faithful all the time, it means that we have a future that extends beyond this life. No matter what happens to us in this life, it really doesn't matter. If all of our riches are taken away and we're put in prison and we're killed, it doesn't matter because we have something beyond this life that lasts for eternity. God is faithful and God will keep his promise. We have a permanent, eternal promise from God in this verse when you look at all the promises of God and you think, you know, you ask your children, what's a promise that God made? A lot of times the kids will say, he promised to never flood the world again. You know, it's, that's one of the best ones. The rainbow in the sky, it's a reminder that there's a promise from God, he'll never flood the world again. And we can trust that. But there's so many other promises from God, and there's one right here in this verse. Verse 3, he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. That's a promise from God. 
That promise is never going away. It is eternal. It is permanent. He will, pri he will provide us with strength. He'll provide us with protection. That doesn't mean that we'll be free from trials. It doesn't mean that we won't have difficulties. It doesn't even mean that there won't be days where our, our uh, enemies will seemingly win a victory against us. It doesn't mean that our experience in those trials will always go our way. But it means that God will help us in the midst of the trials. And that in the end, it'll be clear who wins. It is God who wins, and those who follow him, they will win. When we experience God's faithfulness in the midst of our difficulties, do you know what happens to us? And this is the most important thing. You know, we, we look at the difficulties that Christians face, and we, we don't like to see some of our relig religious liberties taken away. Even in our own country, we look at Canada. It's much worse there, where religious liberties are stripped away. And so we, we see things like a, a Christian baker who doesn't want to participate in a, in a um, wedding of a same-sex uh, couple. And uh, they're fined many, many thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. Um, they're, they're facing all kinds of difficulties. And that's just, the, that's just the forefront of it. Many more are coming our way. And we see those things, and we don't like it because we, we look at... Well, our money's being taken away. Or something else is taken away. Our freedom is taken away. But the most important thing that happens to us when we face difficulties, when we go through these trials, is something that can never be taken away. It is a character trait that is built within you, and it's called endurance. Endurance. That's something the world can never take away. In fact, every time the world ratchets up another level of their persecution against us, as we remain faithful to the Lord and as God is always faithful to us, our endurance grows. James chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What an incredible verse. Endurance allows us to experience the next key to spiritual victory. Key number four. Keep obeying God. That's an easy one. Keep obeying God. It's easy to say at least, right? Keep obeying God. Verse four says, Paul writes to the church, We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Can people say that about you? When they look at your life, do they say, this is someone that, man, they are a rock. This is someone, they are steady in their Christian faith. They're not wishy-washy. Man, no matter what comes up against them, they don't change. You know, they're not talking one way at church on Sunday and then something bad happened in the week and they're cussing like a drunken sailor. You know, they're, they're the same person all the time do people say that about you you know that person's a solid christian she's really consistent she's really consistent in living out her faith you know that's the kind of confidence that paul had in the christians at thessalonica and we got to remember these were young christians we've many of us in this room we've been christians for decades they heard the gospel maybe a year and a half before for the first time something like that they weren't, they weren't long-time Christians, and yet Paul said of them, 
you are doing, and I have confidence you're going to continue to do what we've commanded you. You know, if someone were to praise us like that and say, talk about our Christian faith, sometimes we shy away from that. And we, we, you know, we don't like that kind of accolade. And rightly so. We want to be humble in our faith. And, and you might even say to yourself, or you might even tell them, you know, hey, look, I'm not perfect. If that person only knew how imperfect I really was. But listen, it is not a matter of being perfect. You have flaws, and so do the believers at Thessalonica. In fact, Paul, in our next sermon, Paul's going to get to some of those flaws that they had and address some of those. But the issue is not whether you have flaws or not. The issue is not whether you're perfect or not. The issue is this. Are you persistent in your faith? Do you endure in your faith? And I think the answer to that is yes. You're devoted to the gospel of Christ. When someone says that they notice your faith, really they are talking about the Lord, what God has done in your life. It is God who is at work in you. You've simply yielded yourself to him. And that's the final key to the path to spiritual victory. Key number five, yield to the Lord's direction. Verse five says, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. You know, here's the principle of life. Something is always pulling at your heart. Something's always pulling at your heart. Turn on the TV and there's some commercial on and some, some, they're advertising anything. It could be whatever it is. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. That advertisement, they're pulling at your heart. And the advertisement's always the same. Spend money here. You know, buy my product. Watch my, watch my TV show. Whatever it is, they're pulling at your heart. Radio, commercial, same thing. They're pulling at your heart. Advertisers have made uh, billions upon billions of dollars understanding how to pull at people's hearts. How do McDonald's get to be so strong? Target the kids. Go after the kids, and, and then the parents will come along. And so uh, people know how to pull at people's hearts. Your heart is always being tugged at. Paul is saying, may the Lord be the one who you, whom you allow to direct your heart. Listen to the Lord's message. Yield yourself to the Lord's message. I want to read you some verses out of Second Chronicles. I don't know the last time that you've read Second Chronicles devotionally. I don't know the last time I've read Second Chronicles devotionally, but there are some verses here that I think are really incredible. Second Chronicles 12 verse 14 is talking about a guy by the name of King Rehoboam. He did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Wow, that tells us something about the human condition. Why did this king do evil? Because he made a decision not to set his heart to seek the Lord. What do we learn from that? We can learn that we can set our hearts to seek after God. That's what we need to do. Similar verse in 2 Chronicles 19, verse 3. There's about another king, King Jehoshaphat. Everyone has boring names these days. These guys had great names. King Jehoshaphat. But there is some good in you. Isn't that, wouldn't that be nice if someone made any, uh, an ethical evaluation of your life and said, you know, there is some good in you. There's a compliment. There is some good in you. For you have removed the Asheroth, that's some false gods, from the land, 
and you have set your heart to seek God. You've set your heart to seek God. 2 Chronicles 20, next chapter, verse 33. It says, the high places, these are, these are the, the places where you'd go and you'd worship these false gods. The high places, these high altars, however, were not removed. The people had not yet directed their hearts to the God of their fathers. You can choose what to set your heart on. You can choose where to direct your heart. We need to set our hearts on God. Romans 5, 5 says, And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. You know, when we set our hearts on God, it overflows into the lives of those around us. We can actually manifest God's love to our community. How can we really have an impact in our community? It begins simply by setting our hearts on God. The love of God will be poured out into our lives so much that it overflows from us into the lives of those around us. Jesus said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. The more we set our hearts on God, the more we glorify and lift up the name of Jesus, the more he can draw all men to himself. How are we going to know whether we're winning the spiritual fight? Well, it's pretty simple. When we become more like Christ, when we can see in our own lives, sometimes we can't even see it, but when we can see in our own lives that we're becoming more like Christ, because when, we, when our faithfulness, what can our faithfulness look like? Our faithfulness can look like Christ's faithfulness. We can imitate Christ. Paul said, I want you to be, follow me as I follow Christ. We can imitate Christ. What can our perseverance look like? Look at Christ's perseverance. What can our endurance look like? Look at the endurance of Christ. Every character trait that Christ had, we can experience in our own lives as we put these spiritual tools into use. And we can endure like Christ because God has put his love into our hearts. It's all the work of God. In the very end, this is the work of God in our lives. When you think about your own life and where you go from here, I want you to think about these five keys to victory. Praying that the word of God would spread rapidly and be glorified. Praying that the perverse opponents of the gospel would not have an effect on you, that you'd be rescued from them. Praying that God, is, as he is faithful, you trust in him. Praying that you'll continue to obey God and praying that your hearts will be directed to the Lord and to the steadfastness of Christ.